Yeah. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our next study in the encounter. Today is our lesson number 13. It's the last lesson of this quarter for May 30th. I am joined today by my two lovely co-hosts. Chris, how are you today? I am finer than a frog's hair split three ways. Three ways. That's right. Three ways. Yeah. <laughs> no, good, good, uh, good, good day. And uh, I'll start by saying, hey, thanks for everybody who's ordered the encounter. We've had some uh, good orders for the summer quarter. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, we've done well. So thank you, everybody. Yeah. Awesome. Logan, how are you today? Doing well. It's rainy here in Arkansas. Uh, but I'm I'm doing just fine. Uh, you can also while I'm while I'm talking, I'll go ahead and plug the Monday morning megaphone. You can find that I'm not going to say every Monday. You can find it most Mondays wherever podcasts are are to be found. Uh, I keep wanting to say wherever podcasts are sold, and that that's not right because they're free. Um, but you can find that wherever podcasts can be found, and what you will find is uh, an interview with my friend Robbie Willis, where my friend Chance and I went to his office and we talked about the concept of revival. And we talked about the uh, 10 principles of genuine revival that were written and established by Dr. Carolyn Tennant, who is someone who studies revival. So be, look, be looking out for that discussion. Um, also look out for the episode that just came out this last Monday, where I interviewed uh, David Russell from River Park Church of Christ, and we talked about his call into ministry, and that was a fun episode, so you need to give that a listen as well. Awesome. Church of Christ non-instrumental, or Church of Christ like Mid-America has pianos? Um, Church of Christ non-instrumental, gotcha. although, we, although we talked about that issue too, good. and he's, he's like, he could take it or leave it, right. so he's not, you know, he's not rigid on it. Gotcha. Awesome. And I am Rebecca Zardi, and you can find me on YouTube, Rebecca, Z-A-H-R-T-E, and you can find my Mondays and Fridays devotional, Welcome to My Porch. Before we get going into our lesson, I also did want to highlight Children's Fest. This year, the theme is Love Your Neighbor. It will be July 17th, and this is going to be held in your church, so in your own context with your youth. For more information and to sign up for all the Zoom links, contact Jody Rush. That is jrush at cumberland.org, jrush at cumberland.org. As we get into our scripture and our study today, we're looking at Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to be talking about living by the Spirit. Let's have our prayer for illumination. Almighty God, in our studying today, Send your Holy Spirit to us that we may know what you command and do those things which you desire. Amen. Amen. Our memory verse today is Galatians 5, 22 through 23. It says, by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. Chris, you are our author this week. What do you got in our introduction? Um, so I, again, I've said this to y'all and I'll say this, this is, this is the last, um, Lord willing, uh, this is the last encounter that I have written or will write for a very long time. Um, and I say that because it's just a lot of work and I had to do a lot of these in a small amount of time. And so 
I'll admit, by the time I got to this one, I was like, yeah, this sounds good. Yeah. Um, but Galatians chapter five um, kind of talks about, you know, works of the law, works of the flesh, works of the spirit. So I thought it would be good for us to think about uh, what it means to live by the spirit. And that's higher than living by moral law. So you hear a lot in our churches about moralism or these types of things. And one of the um, studies that caught my attention years ago uh, and is working its way through the church is from the um, guy's named Christian Smith and um, a lady named Melinda Lundquist Denton. They did a study called the National Youth and Religious Survey, I think is what it was called. Um, and they studied thousands. I think it was thousands by the time it was done, thousands of teenagers and, and whatnot. And they came up with basically five kind of themes of what uh, American teenagers, we'll say millennials, I think it's millennials, um, believed about the Christian religion. And so in our introduction, I've got those five things. Mm -hmm. One is a God, little g, <clears throat> exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. And then the second one is God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. And so <clears throat> religion has become a very generic thing. Uh, and I say generic in the fact that it does, it's not distinctively Christian anymore with a large portion of our youth in America, right? So... Um, and I use that, I don't know if you've said it to your kids or, or whatnot. I know I was told this a hundred times when I was growing up, but the clearest example of that is the conversation between a parent or somebody and a kid. And, and they say, you know, you have to do good in school because you got to get good grades so you can get to college and you can get a good job and you can provide for your family. And all of those things are good, but nothing in there is explicitly Christian, right? So if you come, you know, if you contrast that with Jesus that says, pick up my, pick up your cross and follow me. How do you define good? Right. And how do you define successful? Is it just in terms of money? Is it just in terms of material? Is it just in terms of, of having, you know, what the world says is good, but what is explicitly Christian about the Christian faith? That doesn't necessarily mean quote unquote, good jobs, lots of money, pretty mm -hmm. family, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately I think that's what Paul Paul is battling what we would call moralism, right? Like in his particular context, it was, it was checking off the boxes of the Jewish religion, but in our context, it's being good little cultural people. And so we're, we're called to live higher by that. And that's what I think Paul means when he says to live by the spirit, which is greater than living by the law or any type of human ethic. Well, you know, uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, when you look at the concept of living by the Spirit in our chapter, and then you put that in the context of the whole book of Galatians, it it's really interesting because what Paul says at the beginning of, of Galatians 3, which we studied a couple weeks ago, was, you know, have you started, have you begun in the Spirit only to end up with the flesh? And then you tie that into what we're reading today. Um, and what Paul is saying that is, what Paul is saying is that if you want this kind of lifestyle, then you have to put away the flesh and you have to pursue life in the spirit and you have to allow, allow the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth and all righteousness. Um, 
And I think people don't really think about that kind of thing because they feel like everything we're supposed to do that's good in the world should be self-willed, right? Mm. That we, we've got to, you know, we've got to do all these good things. We've got to do all these nice things in the world and God's nowhere involved in the process. It's like we've somehow, it's like we've somehow changed what the definition of repentance is. It's, yeah, because God, God wants you to be good. But, right. And so if you right. want to repent, then you have to stop being bad and start being good. And that looks like a lot of different things. Like on the conservative side, it looks like you have to stop being a liberal Democrat or whatever and be a conservative Republican and be more patriotic. On the liberal side of things, it means you have to stop being white cisgender trash and be more open minded and affirming, even though that's not really open minded. But you, you have to stop doing these things and start doing these things. And it's, that's not what repentance is. That's just a change of behavior. Right. What repentance is, is that you turn from sin, the things that God himself defines as sin in the Bible, and you turn to Christ and you allow Christ to lead, guide you and direct you with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then whenever you do that, that will be manifested in these fruits that Paul is talking about in Galatians 5. Yeah. I think, Chris, you said you asked, had a statement on the bottom of page 81 in, in our books. It says, as Christians, our central goal in life is not simply doing good things, but glorifying God in Christ. Yeah. And I think that's something we forgot. I just recently preached a, a sermon at my congregations about how we have compartmentalized our entire life that Somewhere in our culture, we have taught our youth to create the trendy new word of silos, right? So if you've done any kind of business course in the last 20-ish years, you have, I'm sure you've heard this term silos, how we, we have a work life, we have a home life, we have a friend's life, and then somewhere in there, we've also put our godly life. So when we go to church, when we do good things, um, when we go to a Bible study, it all goes in this one particular compartment, but that does not translate and transfer to the rest of our life, which is the majority of the life that we live. Um, we somehow have uh, decided and taught our, especially our millennials, that that you just do good things, that it's not about glorifying Christ and everything that you do or think or say or watch or whatever. And I'm not sure when and where that happens, um, but unfortunately, we continually perpetuate this, this thought process. So when we do good things, it's just to do a good thing. It's not necessarily to give God any glory in it. And our entire life is, should be about glorifying God and about giving God the honor for what all we're doing and saying and speaking. And, and we don't, we don't, we somehow have lost that whole process. Yeah, yeah. It's also, oh, go ahead. I was just going to bring up, you know, the from from the old catechism, from the old Cumberland Presbyterian Catechism, which was based off of Westminster Shorter Catechism, by the way. Uh, the first question and answer is, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And how do we do that? Well, that that's where it gets complicated and hairy. Um, and then and if you read the catechism, it'll it'll kind of get into what that means. It'll get into the Ten Commandments. It'll get into the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, all that stuff. Um, 
And I think there's certainly some information in there to be, to, to be learned from, but what does it mean to glorify God in your everyday life? And I think that's where we need to, I think that's where we need to, to, to nail down because people think that, like you said, because we have compartmentalized lives that we do spiritual stuff. And so it, we put it in the spiritual folder. So we pray, we read our Bible. That's our spiritual thing we do for the day. Maybe then we close that folder and we go to work. What we don't realize is that going to work for eight hours a day and providing for our families is every bit as spiritual. And we can glorify God while we do that. And we don't have to say amen or glory to God every five minutes in order for it to be a, a glory to God. Right. And so what, what does it mean? Well, it means what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, I think, where he says that, you know, whatever, you're fi- whatever your hands find to do, do it all with thanks to, to God the Father through mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. Um, I think I mixed up 1 Corinthians 10 and Colossians 3, but you get the idea. Yeah. Um, and so the, the idea then is to form our lives around what God would have us to, to be and what God would have us to do. Because what you do, what you do is only an indication of what you are. And so the most important question you have to ask yourself is, what am I becoming? Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't look like the image of Christ, then something's wrong. I think the other thing that well, I don't, I don't want to get lost. It's um, the centrality of Christ on the cross. That like, that is your righteousness. Right. It's not, it's not the works that you do period. <clears throat> it's always the centrality of Christ on the cross. And you have faith that that is life, death and resurrection are what sets you right before God in whatever capacity. Again, I've, we've talked before about, atonement theories or you know reconciliation or whatever else but there was something that christ did that accomplished our relationship with god and it's based on that more so than it is on anything that we do right because how can you define good right right Uh, even even by the law if you say the ten commandments but paul says that's not good or it's good but it's not living by the spirit like it's not right it's not the plane at which God wants you to live and to be. So, um, so anyway, it's the centrality of the cross there too that defines mm-hmm. our righteousness or our, our living, I guess I should say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Absolutely. Um, so, so yeah, I, you kind of go ahead. You summed that up on the very last sentence of this section. You said the ability to follow rules does not mean you have a loving relationship with God in Christ. Right. And I think that's what Paul was yeah. trying to say to the to the Jews of, of the mm-hmm. time. Look, just because you can meet on the Sabbath and eat the right meat and right, like doesn't mean that you have a relationship with God any more than these Gentiles. So right, right, absolutely. How about uh, exploring the scripture? So again, the, Galatians is just a difficult, it really is a difficult book. Um, and I learned that more so the more I studied it. And so what we're looking at with Galatians chapter five and chapter six is basically the ethical part. Like Paul lays down his authority and the authority of the gospels in chapter one and two in chapter three and four, he talks about theology and doctrine. And then in chapters five and six, then he gets down to the, okay, now what? Like this is the ethical part of, of the book. And so I have in here dictionary.com defines ethics as a system of moral principles. 
And so what Paul is doing is that he says good ethical principles come from the Holy Spirit, not from the law, not from any human ideas of what, you know, good ethics are. Um, and for Paul, he was talking about things like circumcision and the Sabbath keeping and, um, you know, dietary restrictions, whatever you find there in the law. He said, that's not good. That's not good enough. Right. That's that's just a mm -hmm. bunch of boxes you're checking off. Um so anyway, that's kind of, that's the, we'll just say that's the background. Uh, I go into a little bit more detail about some things, uh, but mostly it's just Paul saying, look, what you do is not going to secure your salvation, make your relationship better with God. But it's the devotion that you have and the faith that you have in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and then the Holy Spirit then forms and shapes you uh, into something more than the law could ever produce. How's that? That's excellent. Maybe. I don't you should preach no. that for Pentecost. <laughs> that should do what? Yeah. You should preach that for Pentecost Sunday. Uh, might. Could. Mm -hmm. So the problem with that kind of thing is, though, when you're at a church and you've written the lesson in Sunday school and you're in Sunday school and then they hear the lesson, you can't really go and preach it during church, you know? I did. Oh, good for you. I don't, no, I don't know. I think that drives it home more. It does. It could. Yeah. So what I, what I, one Sunday, I don't do it every Sunday, but one Sunday, it was the Sunday that, that Becky wrote that lesson on um, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Okay. Mm -hmm. I preached that text that day because I read Becky's lesson and I thought, hmm, this is good from this angle. I bet I can come at it from this angle and it'll complete one another. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it and it did like everyone left yeah. that sunday going huh yeah. yeah yeah that's awesome i think um on the bottom of page 82 there chris you you say that you had yet to understand that the gospel isn't about acting right or moralism but about a deeply passionate love for god and jesus christ animated by the holy spirit we yeah. cannot transform ourselves from sinners to saints. And you said just a couple minutes ago, you know, what is good? Right. And I think that's very hard for us in our context because we have been taught that our perspective is good. Right. That our perspective is good. Right. And we don't think about the consequences of our actions. Well, it might be good for us, but what happens further down the road or what happens to our neighbor? Um, you know, is it good for them? Was the decision that we made that was good for us? Was it good for them? Right. And that's, that's something that I think Paul was trying to get through to the Judaizers that they were still so stuck on the law and about it being good for them that they could not look at it from the perspective of the Gentiles and how exclusive that was and keeping them out of this good relationship with the Holy Spirit and with Jesus Christ, that they could not see that because they were looking at it from, this is good. This right. Is so good. I wonder if, and I've always kind of wondered this, I don't know if there was a pride thing, if they were just wanting to be more important so far as they had this law and they, they subscribed to it. What I bring up in the lesson is maybe it's just that 
let's say that they were completely sincere and said, this is what you have to do in order to have a good relationship with God. And if you don't do these things, then you're no longer in a good relationship with God. And if you come at it from that perspective, then, I mean, it would be hard for them to think anything else. Like it would be cruel for them not to expect their Gentile brothers and sisters not to act according to this, right? Because mm-hmm. that's that's mm-hmm. the way you maintain that good relationship. And so um, I bring up in the part about like keeping your salvation. So, I mean, it's kind of a moral equivalent to where the Jews were saying, yeah, sure, the gen- these Gentiles have been brought in, but now that they're brought in, they have to do this. And if they don't do this, then they're lost. And so in our confession of faith and as Reformed folks, we believe in what's called the preservation of saints, um, which if you're from a Baptist tradition, you might have heard something like, or Church of Christ, once saved, always saved. Eternal security, these are different things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember thinking just as a young person, when I first accepted Christ and I was, you know, trying to do everything I was supposed to do, and I was checking off all the boxes that good Christians were supposed to do. I remember being in Bible college and I was at a church Christ Bible college and they are decidedly not one saved, always saved people. Um, And I remember thinking, I agree with them on this because look at me, look at what I'm doing. Look at these laws that I'm checking off and doing right. And then thankfully I stayed in the Carmel Presbyterian church long enough to where like, I thought, Oh, well actually I'm terrible too. And so like, there's no way I cannot be terrible. So I have to have and lean upon the grace of God. It's not just Christ plus my stuff. Christ isn't meeting me in the middle. Christ has done absolutely everything. No work that I do can bring me closer to God. And the flip side is true. No work that I do can banish me from God's presence. It can mess up my relationship, but it won't banish me away because God uh, has set his love upon me in Jesus Christ. And God is powerful Mm -hmm. enough to work that out in me. Well, yeah, and I think you have to look at it in the context of, of the time and place that they were too. Like, for example, I'm reading this book. Actually, I just finished reading it this morning called When God Stepped Down from Heaven by Owen Markey. And he recalls the, the Hebrides revival, the, when revival broke out in the Hebrides. And it was such a great move of God. But one of the things he, he says is an indicator of a move of God is that the movie houses um, will be empty and the churches will be full. Well, I agree that the churches will be full when there's a great move of God. But the movie houses, I don't know about because that's like a cultural thing in a way, because they thought they thought back then in like the 20s and 30s, if you go to a movie theater, if you go to a movie house, you know, then you're just participating in worldliness. That's ungodly. And the movies themselves like are like G rated movies by all accounts. Right. Right. Um, So that's a cultural thing uh for the jews this was almost a cultural thing in a way because they wanted gentiles to embrace these laws and to embrace these customs not understanding that christ had set us free from that and then right right and and i think you see this today too uh specifically i think you see this with the a lot of the messianic jewish movement right so a lot of messianic jews they believe Jesus is the Messiah. They believe that he's, you know, he's the son of God. And so in a way, they, they preach the gospel and command people to repent and turn to him. But at the same time, they believe that you have to keep these feasts and festivals 
and you have to live like a Jew because Jesus was a Jew. And it's, mm. it's, and anytime I see that, I'm thinking, Paul already addressed this. Like it's called the book of Galatians, right? right? So I, I'm, I'm turned off by that kind of rhetoric and mindset because I understand what Paul means. Um, and so they, I think the Jews, they're wanting to retain all these customs and, and laws whenever they're not, I'm not going to say they're not applicable because I think there's, if they're not applicable, then the Old Testament doesn't matter. And that's not true either, but they don't, they're not salvific in a way. Um, That's the key. They don't. Yeah. And then I would say, so this is where our, our discussion question of the week would come in. Becky, if you want to Mm -hmm. read that and then. Yep. Our discussion questions on page 83, it's the reflection question. It says, how do you respond to this quote from Martin Luther? If God were willing to sell his grace, we would accept it more quickly than when he offers it for nothing. So I think, Logan, what you're talking about is very much like there's just a sense in which, especially in Western culture, we just don't like to get things for free. We Either A, we think it's too good to be true, or B, we don't want to be beholden to anybody. Right. Right. And so it almost feels better for us that we have a part in this. We have a part and a stake in making ourselves great. And mm-hmm. I think Martin Luther's right because I like if I could put a price on something and I know how much it's worth. But if if God's grace is completely priceless, there's no price to put on it. We we can't give anything toward it and it's just bestowed upon us. But that Yeah, we we can wrap our minds around it. Yeah. Um and grace is grace is a tricky thing for us because we can't wrap our minds around it and he gives and god gives it away for absolutely nothing and what does he get in return like he gets the short end of the stick right right it's almost like the pharisees who came to jesus to justify themselves lord what must i do to be saved and then jesus lists these things off and of course the, i guess it was the rich young earlier said yep done all those things and jesus is like okay Let's let's say now go sell everything that you have and then simply come follow me. You know, like isn't give everything. Isn't it interesting though that the Pharisees come to Jesus asking what that what must they do to inherit eternal life, and Jesus gives them that answer. Um, and then you turn over to Acts chapter two, Pentecost Sunday being this Sunday, and they ask Peter, "What must we do to be saved?" Which is essentially the same question: "What must we do to inherit eternal life?" And he says, repent, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And yeah. it's, it's like, well, why didn't Jesus say that to the rich young ruler? Yeah, it depends, though. Like, I also think it depends on how you come at it. Like, if you come at it with a prideful heart, when you when you're asking Jesus, what must I do? You're looking for affirmation. But then in the, the crowds with the book in the book of Acts are cut to the heart. And they genuinely want to know they're not looking for affirmation as much as they're looking right. for on a need. Like I yeah. want to be saved. And then that might be a little bit of it. Yeah. Too. Yeah. And so I think, I think you're right though. I think if Jesus had given that answer to the rich young ruler, he would have been even more confused. Right. Like, like, yeah. Cause look at me, look at all the stuff that I've done. And now you right. want to do what? So, so that makes me think of Naaman in the old Testament. Uh-huh. And this is a good illustration where do you remember? So Becky, remember the story where like Naaman is looking to be healed uh, leprosy, right? 
And he goes to Elijah and says, um, you know, long story short, uh, he's told to go dip in the river seven times. Uh Uh, And then he leaves mad because he's like, well, I could have done this in Syria. And then his servant says, you know, you wouldn't have been so mad if he said you had to do something really great to get healed. But now that he's just telling you all you got to do is go dip in a river. Now you're angry. Right. And I think that's that might be I've never seen it in that view, but I think that might be exactly what um, what we deal with when it comes to salvation. We want to be saved, but we also want to be great. Yeah. And and, but Mm -hmm. our salvation leads to the cross, which is humiliating. Yes. So. Yeah. And I think it's it's a simple process, but it's a hard and difficult journey. If that makes, if that makes sense, you know, and, and for some odd reason in our mind, being saved should be something complicated and and difficult to do. And it's not, it's, it's a very simple thing to do. You need to, you need to give your life to Christ. You need to accept who Jesus was, accept that he went to the cross, that he died, that he was buried, that he raised again, and that, that he bore the world's sins on the cross for all of us. And it's yeah. a very simple process, but we we want it to be complicated because we feel like we need to have maybe a dog in the fight. We want a piece. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, and there's something else to be considered, too. Um, like we see in Romans chapter five, verse one, for example, Paul says that uh, we are now seeing as now we are justified by faith. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Uh, the word faith there is interesting. The Greek word for faith is pistis. Um Matthew Bates has an excellent book called Saved by Allegiance Alone. And in that book, he makes an argument that he in the book, he makes an argument that the word, the Greek word pistis has a broader definition than what we give it credit for. Like we always attribute faith as being trust and belief. And that is definitely included. But that's not all that faith is. Faith has an element of allegiance to it, of, you know, I'm laying down everything for the sake of this man, Jesus Christ. You know, it's I'm aligning with Jesus on every issue here. I'm going to follow him, you know, even if it means death to myself, which it will mean death to yourself if you follow Jesus. And uh, and Matthew Bates makes an excellent point of talking about how part of the problem we have in, in the American church today is that we separate we separate what we believe with how we live. And the reason mm-hmm. being is we have this mindset that, well, if I just, if I just check off the boxes of who Jesus is, then I'm saved. And that may not be the case, especially if you're not bearing fruit. Right. And, you gotta be a fruit bearer. We've talked about that. Right. And so full allegiance to Christ implies yes, belief, trust, but it it's belief and trust that do something to your life. Yeah. Yeah. Check. Yeah. That checking off the boxes, I pick up and digging deeper. Uh, So, uh, Becky, you got anything on that? Jump over. No, I'm good. Let's jump into digging deeper. So, one of the things, so on the flip side of of just us wanting to have some ownership in our success, like that's, I think, one thing moralism does. Right. The, The flip side to it is, it also, like grace, as we've said, is too hard to comprehend, and we don't understand it, and we can't we can't deal with it. And so, 
I see in here, one of the appeals of legalism or moralism is that you can say, okay, I've done these things. I'm in good shape. Mm -hmm. And then, and then you can move on to something else. Uh, and I use a, I don't know how many times I've been in marital counseling and this has happened, you know, at least four or five times. And it's common. I see it just with couples or whatnot, even if it's not in the marital counseling setting, um, where like one spouse wants to make the other spouse happy. And one way they can do that is just working their tail off and buying good things and making sure you have a nice house for your kids and your family and make sure your, your spouse has a nice car and all that jazz. But the trade-off is, is that you also sacrifice your relationship to an extent. Like, right, you can't have the same relationship if you're working 65 hours a week as you do if you're working 40, right? Right. But the trade-off is you also can't have that nice stuff that you think your spouse wants. And so I remember one counseling session that I had that uh, once this, it was the wife in this case, she was just, she's like, I feel so distant from my husband. And then the husband says, look, I'm doing this for you. Like, right. And so they wanted the same thing. He wanted to make her happy. She wanted him to be happy, but just because he was running around trying to do all these good things, they missed the boat of what a relationship was. Mm -hmm. And that also is what moralism can be, right? Just doing things yeah. does not necessarily mean that you're connecting in a, in a, emotional good way and so we got to be really careful on that but i think that's what then the jews were doing they were saying they like i genuinely think they loved god right like they wanted to be good godly people and the way they understood that was okay i'm performing all the works i'm supposed to perform but like i said if you do that in a marriage like if there were like if there was a list of seven things i could do to make amy happy every day i'd have them done by 9 30 in the morning and the rest of the time would be for me <laughs> and that's not a good relationship that just wouldn't lead to good things it just wouldn't so um so anyway and then also in there paul talks about circumcision and and basically he talks about the motivation again it's what we said it's a motivation of circumcision yeah. are you checking off the box or is the circumcision something that's happening to your heart are you being transformed by your relationship with god as logan mm -hmm. has said bearing fruit mm -hmm. good fruit uh, mm -hmm. So anyway, there we go. I think you bring up a really good point in that, Chris. We've, we've talked about this before, and, and I know in my congregations, we've had this discussion frequently about how we can get so caught up doing, quote unquote, good things, you know, for the church that we get more focused on what we're doing than why, why it is that we're doing it. Um, you know, and I think that's, that's really there's a fine line. And like you said, there's a, there's a balance somewhere in there of, of being a good fruit bearer, but understanding that everything that you do is a reflection of who Christ is through you. Um, but at the same time, not getting so focused on, on your activities and everything that you're trying to do and forgetting the reason that you're doing it is because you, you love God and that you want to want to grow with God that you want to develop that relationship and that's that sometimes is a hard balance to figure out where where that is Absolutely. well pe people have a hard time with this too because like listen we get it salvation is by grace alone through faith fully on board with that fully believe that but when you start talking about spiritual disciplines in that context people just look at you like you have a second head growing out of your shoulder because they're like, well, if I'm saved, I don't got to do any of this stuff. Why wouldn't you want to do this stuff? Like it, right. 
I don't, I don't care that it doesn't contribute to my salvation. Like I want to be better for God and for my wife and for my neighbor. And so I'm going to do these things. Yeah. And, I mean, that's and what think, the spirit produces. A desire right. to yes. do that. And one of the yeah. things I've noticed is I've, I've been studying, I've been studying about revival and I've been having conversations about it with people. I've noticed that, you know, great moves of God come after people have just given themselves over to God completely and spent time in prayer and spent time in contrition and devotion and have really considered their own, their own repentance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what we need to see again, is we need to see another move of God. And we're not going to get it just by sitting around twiddling our thumbs going, well, I'm saved by grace. Thank God. Okay, well, you can sit on your blessed assurance all day long, but it's not going to accomplish anything. Sure. It's, it's, and, I, and I know yeah. that sounds, you know, worksy or whatever, but I, again, I affirm that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But again, it's motivation. That's what we say. Like, if you right. love someone, motivation. You, you do things. And so, uh, yeah. Um, when you, it's, again, it's like marriage. When you love your spouse, you yeah. do. And you, you don't do stuff for them. And you don't right. see it as a work. Exactly. No. See, here's um, someone came, someone was talking to me a while back and they were like, oh, well, the Bible contradicts itself because, you know, Paul says in Ephesians 2 8 and 9 that we're saved by grace. And yet Peter says over in 1 Peter 3 21, baptism now saves you. Well, see, the Bible contradicts itself because baptism is a work. No, baptism is not a work. Right. It's a grace. Right. It's a gift of God. Mm-hmm. Always is. Mm-hmm. They did not read their Cumberland Presbyterian Confession of Faith. That's correct. They did not. <laughs> That's awesome. And that would have meant something if they were Cumberland Presbyterian, but right. but it wasn't. Right. Uh, I think that's, I think you bring up a really good point because we talk, we've talked before about how comparing uh, what we do for God and our relationship and using that word relationship and how that's kind of become, I don't know, it's become a buzzword, I guess, maybe, because um, often we, we say you have to have the right relationship with God. But if you, if you think about what a relationship is, you know, we, we were talking about the marriage thing. If, and I used this as an example the other night in one of my Bible studies, I said, if you accepted God as your, as your spouse, as your, you know, you have this relationship with God, but then you spent all your time and effort and attention with this other person over here and did not give God any of your time, attention, and your effort. How, how are you developing that relationship with God? How are you working on that relationship? And don't you think that this half of the relationship would feel neglected? Like you're not spending any time and any effort with them. And, and they said, well, yeah, of course, you know, if you, if we did this with our, with our human spouse and we were hanging out with this other person over here and not spending any time with our human spouse, they, they'd be upset that like, why am I not good enough for you to spend any time with me? You know, why am I not good enough for you to spend any money on or put any effort into, to making this a better thing between the two of us? 
And I think the same is the same is true of God. You know, if, if your entire relationship with God is only about checking off your boxes, I went to church Sunday morning. Good job. Uh, I read my Bible today. Good job. And if that's all that you're putting into that relationship, uh, that's very, 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 very little of your time throughout the week. Yeah. Very little. Yeah. You know, we're, we're called to be different. We're called to look different. We're called to act different. And, and we learn how to do that by spending time and being transformed by God's word, which means that we have to spend time in God's word and right. to do and be different. So that's the, that's, that's it. That's the trick. And that leads us into <laughs> the learning from the scripture section. It's not as so like, again, it's that motivating factor and where the power comes from, like, right. The power to uh, be good doesn't come from your will. It comes from this love of God and the Holy spirit in your heart. Right. That's how that mm-hmm. comes. So yeah. like, um, I put it in here. If we try by circumcision, Sabbath observant, following dietary laws or any other works to earn justification before God, we forfeit the promise of the gospel. And that's where Charles Spurgeon, this is, I think I finally found it when I always think about this quote. Um, this is under the yeah. learning from the scripture part. Charles Spurgeon says, if thou puttest one atom of trust in thyself, thou hast no faith. If thou dost place even a particle of reliance upon anything else, but what Christ did, thou hast no faith. If thou dost trust in thy works, then thy works are antichrist and Christ and antichrist can never go together. Christ will have all or nothing. He must be a whole savior or no savior at all. Right. So like that's the Mm -hmm. Protestant cry actually, like it is all of God and all of Christ, nothing else whatsoever. Um, And so it makes my heart happy. Right. So that was the first thing Paul was saying. The second thing Paul was saying is even if ritual or discipline is good and honored by God, it doesn't transform your heart. Right. Uh, It simply can't. So like I've also put in here, being moralistic can keep you from fornicating. Right. Like like maybe it's hard to do, but like as a human being, you can probably train and self-will yourself not to cheat on your wife but what about what's going on in your mind mm-hmm. right or you can probably make sure that you don't drink one or two too many beers in your life but do you have a burning desire to do so right like mm-hmm. that's different than living a sober alert life that paul talks about or like you may not i've told people this you may not just go into an argument and clock somebody across the head because you got mad at them. But that doesn't mean you're not quarreling with them or hating them in your heart because of some Mm -hmm. stance they have politically or whether they agree or disagree with you in, in your religion or whatnot. But the Holy spirit can transform you into peace, patience, kindness, soberness, gentleness, the, all these things. That's what the Holy spirit does. It calls us to live higher than simply refraining. Mm Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. until your puppy dog hi. Yeah. Hi hockey. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. Um that's you know, that's the that's the learning part. Um yes. 
we and that i think the jews were struggling with that yeah um because they were they were looking at themselves as, as holding to this line therefore being morally superior to everyone else and we yeah. have to be very careful in our context because i think that's a big problem with organized religion and why the youth have such an issue going back to what you had in the introduction that just being a good person um that's why they have an issue with religion is because unfortunately i think part of the problem is people have come across as being morally superior and so those people that have dealt with a lot of struggles in their life uh whatever addictions or whatever it may be whatever sins that they have i mean how many times have you heard somebody say when i get my life together that's when i'll come to church because they 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 feel like everybody else that that's going to church is morally superior to them and that's that's not the truth um but i think too often in our culture nice slogan i think in our culture um that that's been a problem and why people shy away from religion because we've been very very pharisaical in our in our superiority like here's the no like here's the thing though i'll just give this as an example you're right there's there is that problem but i think i don't think the problem and i and i don't think you meant to imply this either i don't even think you implied it i'm just in case for in case our listeners drew this conclusion I don't think the problem is with religion, because James says that there is a good and pure religion, mm-hmm. and that is to care for widows and orphans. So mm-hmm. it's it's religion that produces positive action towards the marginalized. Um, but the problem is always the human heart, right? So the problem is always the human heart. So people who have a problem with they say, well, the religion is the problem. No, religion is not the problem. You are. And religion's not the problem. It's people who pretend to be morally superior when they may not be. Uh, yeah. I'll give you a good example. There was a there was a man that died. <clears throat> there there was a man that died. He was an elder in his church, and this was been many 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 years ago. Um, he died, and whenever the pastor was going to do his funeral, he kind of uh, he kind of was talking to different members of the family to get an idea of how he should do his funeral sermon and his eulogy. And most everyone had positive feedback about who the man was, and what he had done for the, com- the church and the community and stuff like that, except for one person. And it was his daughter and his daughter. When he got alone with his daughter, he said, she said, don't you dare preach that man into heaven. He beat me every day of the week and he'd come in drunk and molest me on the weekends. And yes. And for preachers out there, uh, for the Presbyterian setup, I'm just going to throw this out here because I know it to be true. Be careful. Uh, we are Presbyterians, and our funerals are a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power with which the life, death, burial, and resurrection does for people. We are not eulogy people at our core. We are uh, not. So be careful about that. I've always well, struggled with that. Nobody knows the human heart, good or bad. Right. Uh, anyway. That's true. So, I mean, the issue is that I, I think sometimes we need to be careful saying that, oh, uh, well, I'm, well, nobody's morally superior to anybody else. Because we don't know what a person thinks in their heart, and because we don't know what a person does when no one's looking, 
we can't know if they're morally superior, but on the same note, we also can't know that they're not. Right. Um, because I guarantee you, my grandmother is morally superior to me and much more morally superior to uh, the meth head who lives down the street who keeps getting locked up every two or three months. Right. Um, and part of that is due to the fact that my grandmother believes if she sneezes wrong, she'll lose her salvation. <sighs> but regardless, she's morally superior. And I guarantee you, she has a solid relationship with Jesus. So here's the thing, though. When you say morally superior, this is a good conversation oh. because then what do you do, right? So, like, we could say, you know, depending on how you wanted to do it, um, I'm, I could be more morally superior than King David because I've never committed adultery or murdered someone. Um, yet I could not also uh, comfortably wear the title of man after God's own heart on most, of, right. on most of my life. So, but, so that's the problem with moralism. Like, so, you know, I don't really want to press too hard on that illustration you had, but we don't know that man's life story. We also don't know if he repented and if, and if he did, then you're not preaching him into heaven. He's receiving the salvation of Jesus Christ. And right. that would be very hard for her to take, I'm sure. Right. It, 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 is, it would be hard. And I guess my point is that none of that means that we're not all sinners, right? Because right? we think of whenever we think of someone as a sinner, we think of someone who is morally inferior. Right. We think of the meth head down the road who keeps getting arrested every two or three months. Mm-hmm. But I'm a sinner. My my grandma's a sinner. Right. And the re- and what makes us sinners is that we all have an inclination to sin and we all need to rely on Jesus. Right. And and yeah, but I think it's also good to point out that works both ways. It's the workers in the vineyard. Like mm-hmm. we want to be justified because we've been we've been morally good. And then mm-hmm. that somebody who has done morally bad things for the entire life, but then uh, completely does trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. All of a sudden, they're children of God too. That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Easy in theory. Yeah. Terribly difficult. difficult in practice. <clears throat> yeah, very uh, difficult to accept. You know, difficult to accept that that whole thought process. Yeah. Yeah, sure. that's tough. Yeah, that's really tough. I mean, like, yeah. I guess I'm fortunate enough to know me well enough to know that I'm. I, I mean, like people can call me names like uh, can be terrible on stuff and I don't take offense to it anymore because I know me clear-headedly know me I am terrible so it doesn't, it doesn't hurt me too bad but I cling ever more <laughs> to the grace of Christ yeah so anyway yeah yeah which I think you you close out this section with that you said we're saved from the punishment of sin only by the grace of God and we can bear holy fruit only through the grace of God by the Holy Spirit working through us. It is all by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, that's about as Protestant as you can make something right there. I mean, yeah. that's pretty okay. good. Uh, I think that's true. So I'm going to go ahead and jump in because that's the heart. So like, it's one of those things like I've been a preacher for a pretty long time, too. And so like, uh, I know where Lutherans can go like split personality because unless you're really trained as a Lutheran, you preach law and then you preach grace, but it's just so easy then to preach moralism. Like, right. That's, that's the hard part of preaching because we're application based. And so like, we want to say things like grace law, here's how you can be better. 
And that's not gospel, right? That's not, that's not grace necessarily. We, we always point back to what Jesus Christ did that makes us righteous before God. And so, yeah, like, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, you know, I'm preaching through first John right now at my church and the way I preach, I just follow the text and say what the text says. It's like, man, I don't know if I'm a Calvinist anymore after reading first John. Right. <laughs> that's the way. And it's also, again, I, that's, or James is another good book. So that's yeah. when like Luther, Luther had a problem with James because it seemed very moralistic. Sometimes it is. So what I wanted to do in this applying the scripture section is to show the difference between necessarily just through sheer willpower performing good works and then understanding maybe how grace works in our lives. And so brother Lawrence wrote a, well, he didn't write the book. Basically the book was called practicing the presence of God. He gets the credit for it, but basically it was somebody interviewing him and then writing down his thoughts or whatnot. But anyway, what brother Lawrence realized is like he was a monk and he always tried, you know, kind of like Luther to do everything right. And then he realized he really just hated daily prayers. Like he, they were just the most boring thing in the world for him. And so he figured out that that's not going to be the way he connects with God. And so he just decided just everything that he would do, he would just invite God into his presence, whether mm -hmm. it was washing dishes, whether it was the daily prayers, whether it was whatever else. And just be aware to try to be aware of God's presence at every every moment in his life. And when he found himself straying away uh, and his thoughts were far off from God, he would just say, hey, Lord, be with me now. Let me be in your let, let me be aware of your presence. And so anyway, he just said over the years. He walked with God and didn't try. Right. Like he didn't view anything that he did as a monk as a means of penance or merit or anything he just ended up walking with god because in every moment he simply said lord be with me you know and let make me aware of your presence and so there wasn't any one thing that he did there was no quote-unquote spiritual discipline but what he did do was to make himself available to the holy spirit and ask uh -huh. the holy spirit to be within his life and that's what spiritual disciplines can do so like daily prayers are an office if you want to call it that way that you go to and say i'm in my office meeting with God. And that's the way spiritual disciplines work is that they are holy appointments, divine appointments in which you make room for you to be available in the Holy Spirit specifically to be available and to commune in some way, shape or form. So. And what a beautiful thing that is. I mean, that's, isn't that like the whole, the whole point that we want to walk with God our entire day, right. our whole life not just a part of us going back to that compartmentalizing our lives to, you know, how we're supposed to live through our faith and, and invite Jesus and the Holy spirit to be a part of everything that we do and giving God the glory. And how do we, how do we do that? And it's really walking with God every, every moment, but it, is, but it's hard. That's what, that's why I said earlier that being saved is a simple process, but walking through that is a difficult journey. It's a sure. difficult journey, but it doesn't have to be hard. I, I bring that up for like, uh, like I can, I can feel not me. I like waking up early and reading the Bible, but like my, my wife is one who's like every four months or so she'll get really determined to wake up at like five 30 in the morning. spend the first hour of her day reading scripture and praying. And of course that lasts like two weeks, not because she doesn't want it to, but it becomes a job. Like, I mean, like it really literally becomes, and that's not her. 
Like she was not geared to wake up at five thirty in the morning. And if she treated God the same way she treated me at five thirty, he wouldn't want her up either. <laughs> but anyway. But so instead of saying like, okay, this is something I have to do to make sure my spiritual life is right. No, that's not how that works. Just because you wake up at 530 and punish yourself uh, and that's all you're getting out of it. That's not going to help you. You can practice the presence of God in many ways and it doesn't have to be legalistic. So anyway, I hope she doesn't watch this. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I was talking with a Methodist pastor this week. Um, and one of the things he said he did every morning is he woke up at like uh, 5 or 6 a.m. And he would read one chapter of the Old Testament and two chapters of the New Testament. And one of the chapters that he would read in the New Testament would be the, would be the last chapter that he read the day before. So he's reading it twice. Oh, wow. Okay. And he does that so that he can he can memorize what he wrote and because whenever he wakes up at 6 a.m even if he's had coffee he's not all the way awake so he might read the same chapter you know day after day and get something out of it that he didn't get the day before Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. so and everybody's different that's what i mean to say like if you're going by a law then there will be certain things the daily office with prayers fasting there'll be uh, you know, giving to the church, maybe, you know, whatever. These will be mechan- mechan- mechanistic things that you do, but it's not necessarily producing that joy. Or, and I'm not saying it's not good, but you put things in your day that will remind you of the presence of God and put you in the presence of God. And then you, you uh-huh. build up. And, and so disciplines and laws and dietary customs, they could be tools, fine, of connecting with God but they're not your goal. Right. And it's not something, I think when we find one thing that works for us, we think everybody else should do it. That's how, that's how this happens. That's how Galatians (laughs) happens. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So just because it works for you does not necessarily mean that's going to be something that translates to somebody else and, and works for them and in, in their life, which is why as pastors and as, as Sunday school teachers, we should be educated in different avenues and aspects because each person is different and it's going to speak to them in a way that's different from the way it speaks to you. So we, we need to be educated enough and, and different tools and possibilities on um, and even ways of preaching, you know, I think we talked about this before. Um, what was it too? I want to say last year, but last year just like didn't happen. 2019, the, the symposium, um, brother Drew Gray did a, an excellent class on, um, different ways that people worship God. Um, and Chris, you said that lit- liturgy is one way where you really feel feel God in your heart and, and you feel close to God and other people it's through, through arts, um, whether it's poetry reading or, or music, whatever that happens to be. And so as pastors and teachers, we also need to remind ourselves that because we feel the presence of God this way does not mean everybody in our congregation does not mean everybody in our class is going to feel the presence of God. And so we need to be open and available to helping people find ways where they can feel the presence of God. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm done. That's all I got. Yeah, same here. (laughs) 
blessings guys thank y'all and uh, so i will say what we're gonna do I, for the summertime i'm just gonna break these down to like 20 minute things that i'm gonna do because um as a denominational employee summertime gets kind of crazy and so trying to get things squared away um timing wise is just hard and so uh we're gonna just for the summertime, like probably a lot of your churches uh, kind of have a scaled down version of Christian education. So that's what we're going to do. And then we'll meet back up uh, fall and uh, see what's happening then. But thank you all very much for this three months. I think all three of the months has been either me, Becky or Logan writing or, or all three of the quarters. So it's almost yeah. a full year. It's a journey. And so it's been nice to nice to go on it. But anyway. Bless you. Y'all want to say anything for goodbyes for now? Thank you all for joining us during this process and uh, keep us in your prayers as we move forward so that we can continue um, however God is leading us to make sure that this happens uh, for your congregations. Thank you. Guys, it's been fun. Um, I hope we get to do this again at some point. Um, Find me most Mondays at the Monday Morning Megaphone. Are y'all still doing the culty crimes and criminal minds? We are doing the culty crimes and criminal minds. So find me there too. We just don't do that one as often. It's become less consistent. Gotcha. All right. Well, blessings on Sunday school. And remember, uh, next week is the summer quarter. Uh, there's a preview video on there if you want to share that with your class with Dr. Qualls and Dr. D. Uh, and then we'll see you next week.